This is Beth Butler, and thank you for listening to From the Ground Up, where we chat with people in and around the real estate industry. I have been in the real estate business for 35 years, and much of my experience has been about building the business from the ground up. And I'm pleased to share some of the people who I've met along the way and who have helped me build in this podcast. Welcome to this week's episode of From the Ground Up podcast. I'm pleased to welcome Mr. Treyer Lesnick, president and founder of Platinum Luxury Auctions. Treyer entered the luxury real estate industry as a sales executive for a prominent brokerage firm in Fort Lauderdale. He was then recruited into the real estate auction sector by a distinguished auction firm headquartered in the south in Southwest Florida. After more than four years with that firm, first as a sales executive and then as its director, he departed with a vision of improving the auction model. This vision led him to found Platinum Luxury Auctions and to develop the luxury auction with a trademark model for the auction sale of multi-million dollar real estate. The term luxury auction is now widely imitated by industry competitors, so he must have been on to something. Throughout more than $990 million in completed luxury real estate auction sales to date, Treyer has been dedicated to upholding the highest standards of excellence and integrity in every transaction. This approach has become a hallmark of the Platinum Luxury Auction team. Treyer earned a Bachelor of Science in Biological Sciences with a minor in Physiology from Cornell University. While studying at Cornell, He founded and then sold his first business venture, a specialized indoor marketing firm. As an avid lifetime athlete, Treyer was inducted into the Pennsylvania Sports Hall of Fame in the year 2000 and as a recipient of the Scholar Athlete Award. He is often quoted in the Wall Street Journal on matters related to the luxury real estate and to real estate auctions and has been interviewed by other globally prominent publications such as Forbes, Bloomberg, and the Financial Times. Please welcome to From the Ground Up, Treyer Lesnuck from Platinum Luxury Auctions. Welcome, Treyer. Hi, Beth. How are you doing? Great, great. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Mind if we just dive right in? Let's dive right in, sure. Okay, Treyer, what about auctions lured you away from the general real estate business? I would probably say uh, two things. One is that I really liked the kind of structured um, uh, nature of uh, the auction process. Everything is very uh, date-oriented. Uh, um, there is a defined beginning and end, um, which is something that is is very often not there in the traditional um, real estate business, and that is something that is very frustrating um, to me, just uh, inherently frustrating no matter what I'm doing. Um, I like some structure and some parameters. Um, and also, um, it was... Uh, it's a business that uh, naturally allows for, at least it seems that way um, to me, naturally allows for interaction with a lot of really neat people, both on the, I've been able to meet a lot of really unique um, sellers um, as you know, clients for properties that we've handled and sold. And then the buyers who tend to perk their heads up um, seemingly you know, out of the woodwork um, in many occasions, often tend to be um, uh, very interesting individuals. So it, those two things have uh, are the big draws for me. I'd imagine that would certainly be true, especially in the luxury space. Yes. So, so what did you do when you joined that first auction company? So, you know, I'm sure you just kind of started at the bottom rung of the ladder. So how did you start? 
What, what did your job look like? And then how did you work your way up? Uh, kind of very much in the traditional working your way up sense in that I started as a um, sales executive um, and more really as a, as a project manager, meaning I was um, hosting a lot of the previews for the properties, dealing with a lot of the buyers, uh, prospective buyers and so forth, and agents as they you know, would physically come and visit these properties we were offering for auctioned and uh, also performed duties um, related to business procurement, going out and looking for um, new sales opportunities, new auctions by communicating with real estate agents, attorneys, advisors, accountants, and so forth. Um, and did that for a number of years until I then became uh, director of the company, uh, more or less a managerial role and kind of oversaw the activities of, of other um, folks on the um, doing project management and doing business development and procurement as I was doing. And um, at that point, interfacing a lot more directly with principal sellers um, and negotiating with them and, and managing them through the process and so forth. Whereas before, I, I hardly was doing any of that um, seller-focused activity. So that was probably one of the biggest differences. So, Trey, you're there. You're at this great auction company. You've got a great position as a managing director. What tempted you or made you start platinum luxury auctions? Well, uh, probably what motivates a lot of people to start something, you think that you can do it better, right? And then you can find out if you can. So that was, of, of course, part of it, a significant part of it. But um, more specifically, it, it seemed like things could have been done differently and better um, in a number of, of, of aspects um, at my um, former company. Um, and it's not like they were doing things bad, um, to put it flatly. Um, we did quite a good clip of business and had some uh, really great sales, but um, there were a lot of things missing that I thought could have been done better in terms of um, client management, in terms of communication, um, in terms of having the um, look and feel of the business, ranging from how the how the associates at the company dressed and spoke to how the materials look to how things were branded and positioned. Um, I thought that could have been elevated quite a bit more to at least be on the level of the really big known, you know, luxury real estate brands who were doing very well in that business. Um, and I also thought that um, if what we were doing with these luxury real estate auctions was working so well in Florida, because what was kind of interesting about um, my former company is that almost every single sale we did was in Florida. And most of those were even south of, I would say, um, Orlando. We only did a handful outside of um, the state of Florida. So I thought that there was much, much more ground to cover um, and you could be um, perhaps much more successful in doing so. And that just didn't, at the time, seem to be a, a big, big interest at in my former company. So in order to have all those things happen, I knew they couldn't happen there. I had to go and, and try to do them uh, myself. So that's what I set out to do. So obviously that venture led to a very successful company. So tell us, how has Platinum grown? What areas do you cover now? And what is the size and composition of your team? Uh, well, we've grown. Uh, we were formally founded in the middle of 2010 and really opened our doors. And at the end of 2010, you could almost argue Q1 2011 was when we really um, opened the gates to do business in the marketplace. And since then, we've grown pretty evenly um, and steadily, which is um, usually a good thing in small business um, versus having that not happen or growing way too fast and getting a lot of growing pains. But um, we now operate in um, a much bigger geographic territory, including some areas outside of the United States, 
Um, although in those cases, um, typically we're dealing with, um, you know, resort destination locations like Caribbean islands and things like that. Although we have done business and are doing business in Fiji, that's pretty far afield, probably the farthest afield we've, we've been. Um, but uh, in terms of the United States, we work all over the U.S. now. Um, have not covered all 50 states. I don't know if anybody's uh, done that or if that's possible, but um, I think we're in more than about 2022 um, by now. Um, our sales volume has increased um, almost every year that we've been I'm in business now, Beth, but um, we, we limit our sales volume intentionally. I'm sure we'll talk more about that later. Um, uh, because of the way we, we do business, we don't try to do 60, 70, 80 deals a year. Um, but we've grown in size internally as well. Um, it literally was just me when I started the company, uh, me and a laptop more or less. And then uh, there was a, an admin added and then another associate. And now there are about, um, about 16 or 18 of us in the core team um, in terms of our uh, marketing team and our admins and our business uh, development folks, our salespeople and executives. And then we also have... Um, by now, years long, uh, years stand, multiple years standing contracts, excuse me, um, for additional vendors that aren't formally a part of us, but close enough, uh, people like uh, press teams, uh, designers, um, video, videographers, um, art directors, things like that, that we have on full retainer and have for um, probably six, seven, eight years now. Um, so we can be as big as probably about 25, 26 people, but with a core team of, I think it's about 18 of us. Wow. I mean, your group has really grown. I'm going to just touch back for just a second. How is it that you, like, do you need some sort of licensing or do you need to incorporate outside of the U.S. to do those international auctions? How does that work? Um, in, in most cases, um, yes, licensure is required in um, varying amounts. So it is, um, depending on what side of the exercise you are on, um, it is either a very funny or very frustrating exercise to determine the licensure in all these different places. Because even within the U.S., um, from state to state, there's very little consistency um, in, in what uh, licenses you have to possess and what regulations you have to follow to, to perform the services we perform. So um, we do maintain um, real estate licensure in, I think I'm in a, a broker in about five states right now, um, in some other states, we are also um, a designated auction business um, and so forth. Uh, so it varies. Um, when you go abroad, it's about the same in terms of you know, wearing one or the other or both of those hats, meaning real estate broker and, and auction company or auctioneer. Um, but we are careful um, not to uh, be performing services that are beyond the scope of our duties, especially here in the U.S. Um, with regards to uh, duties that need to be conducted by a licensed real estate broker. Um, so that is a small part of the reason, um, or I, I should say no small part of the reason that about 99% of the transactions we conduct are in fact in cooperation with um, the existing um, real estate broker and agent who are um, offering that property so that they can perform that portion of the services and everybody can uh, be above board. Perfect. So you, you oftentimes have a boots on the ground partner. I think that's smart. Yes, so bring it back to deal flow. How do you generate auction leads? With a lot of elbow grease is the short answer. So it's very similar to the, um, the traditional real estate business in that regard, in that um, the good old-fashioned ways of getting business still largely apply, um, meaning that 
um, what has always been um, the most successful um, way for us to develop new um, auction sellers is just by being in business and they see us out there in the Wall Street Journal or on TV or a success in a press release and they call into the office. Um, the other way is working through um, intermediaries that such sellers may have um, beyond the real estate broker, which would be attorneys, accountants, wealth advisors, things like that, um, relationships we've my team and I have developed over the years in those spaces. And then um, a very significant portion of our business development is done through the obvious, through the um, traditional um, brokerage industry, because if there is a seller um, who is um, realistic about the market and motivated um, to sell and, and look at the luxury auction process to do that, chances are they're going to be listed for sale and probably have been listed for sale for some time. So um, not only do we work through um, the, the brokerage um, avenue in order to eventually um, reach uh, such a seller, but we work with um, the brokers very extensively um, in order to look for those opportunities with them together. Because whenever we come into the picture, um, it's not at a at a detriment to or in competition with a real estate agent. It's in cooperation with um, and to um, uh, support and benefit um, that agent in terms of selling the property, earning all their fees, and so forth. Well, th- thanks for pointing that out. I'd like to do a little bit more of a deep dive into how you work with general estate agents, because I think by and large, as you know, this has been your experience and my experience that many real estate agents don't really understand your process, how they can work with you and how it really is such a mutually beneficial relationship. So let's kind of step-by-step walk through how you work. We'll just give a scenario, how you work with general real estate agents. So I'm out there, right? I've got a listing. Um, It's not selling. Maybe I'm coming to the end of my term, right? So is that the best time to reach out with you? Let's just kind of walk through what this process looks like. Sure. So um, a lot of agents um, will not reach out to us at all. Not their fault. They either don't necessarily know about us or have unflattering ideas about the whole auction process. I don't blame them for that. There are a lot of folks out there doing things that 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 uh, uh, are, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it is fair to have an unflattering opinion of some of those things. So, um, but if they do um, get a hold of us or um, we happen to get a hold of them, um, uh, the goal is to um, arrange a, a conversation with their seller after first informing the agent about how this process works and walk through all the steps and, and see if the seller and the property qualify for what we do. And then if so, you know how we do what we do. So um, even before we talk to the seller, however, we spend a lot of time um, uh, simply educating and informing the agents as to how this works. I often tell my team, you know, you're, you're a sales team, but you're really not doing any sales once you get here. You are an educator and an informer as to how this works properly, because not only do you have to explain how it works, but um, the properly part is important because there are a lot of permutations and derivations of, of um, how an auction can be done. And then, of course, who's doing it matters. So um, it's always a, a constant um, uh, process of making sure that we get the right meshes to the agent, which is quite simply the following. And that is that rather than um, extending this listing for another six months, year, et cetera, or perhaps losing the listing, um, because either you are just um, feel like you're at uh, the end of your rope with it or the seller is trying to look for another agent, why don't instead we try to 
turn that into a commission and a sale via working with us on the luxury auction process. And also we will be providing to you all of the buyer leads that we develop as a result of promoting this one property for sale, because there's only going to be one winner, one purchaser when everything is said and done. And there may be 20 or there may be 220 um, additional buyer prospects um, that have responded to our process that we platinum are not going to make a fuss over because after we do that auction with that agent in Miami, we're going to be probably headed over to Oregon and to Texas and New York and so forth. So we want the traditional agents to be able to do their traditional business and um, hopefully we can allow them to do that successfully quickly and also then provide a boost to the rest of their business with um, the, those buyer leads that we provide. So um, we are explaining all of that to them um, to then see if we can then get that message to their seller if the agent believes that the seller would be uh, right for such a discussion. So to the, to the most important question here for most of our listeners, how does a listing agent get compensated for referring you um, a potential auction client? So um, the great thing about it is that the compensation that is in place for a listing agent on their listing stays in place when we, uh, when we uh, come into the picture. So um, not only will the agent earn their full fee as they already have in their listing agreement, um, but it's a cooperative process. Um, there used to be a company, they're not too active anymore, but the way they did business was um, an auction company, excuse me, was they would always have the agent, you know, refer the listing out to them and they would handle everything. And um, today we, and I would argue pretty much all the other companies do the same thing in that it, it's a co-op, it's very much a cooperative process. We're working right hand, left hand with the given listing agent and their brokerage from the beginning to the end um, of the process um, so that we make sure we have left no stone unturned, followed all the right rules and use both our expertise procedurally and that agent's expertise on the nuances of the local market um, ranging beyond just the seller and the property itself, but to the rest of the brokers in the marketplace, um, what typical buyer behaviors are, differences in neighborhoods, you know, all those types of things. So um, it is not at all a, a competitive process and it, it does come off as that um, to a lot of agents, which we understand just inherently. And then um, other companies in the marketplace may take actions that make it seem like they are competitive instead of cooperative. So um, the most important thing to know, and we sometimes joke whenever we talk in offices, you know, if you remember only one thing and you go to sleep for the rest of us being here, remember that you earn your full commission when we come along um, and we're going to get the job done um, as a team. Well, you know, that's, that's a message you can't repeat <laughs> often enough. That's right. Back to where we started. I, you know, I'm a listing agent. My listing's about to expire. And I think, let me, let me reach out to Treyer and his team because maybe an auction is a good solution for, for my client and I can still keep my commission. So I reach out to you. I, I know you start to engage with the, with the seller of the property. Talk us through that process. And, you know, it's a phone call. I, I, you know, are there upfront fees? Just give us the high points of what a seller, what, what does a seller need to do in order to place his property in an auction? Well, I'll first touch upon an important thing you said, and, and it involves the, the timing um, of the delivery of this whole, you know, luxury auction um, information. And you are correct in that you've said, I think a couple of times now that, uh, that in your theoretical, I'm the agent kind of nearing the end of my term. 
And that is when most agents um, reach out, um, if they are reaching out when they are at the end of their auction term, or excuse me, end of their listing term, because of course they're doing all their own things that they do as part of their own marketing campaign or that their company does and so forth um, to start. And it, it is not until all those things are exhausted that they may start you know, considering another option. So um, we understand that, but we are always encouraging agents to reach out sooner um, than that um, for two simple reasons. And one is that um, one statistic that has been absolutely consistent in my all 15 years of, of this business, um, even when I was at my former company and then carried over to Platinum, is that at nine out of 10 inquiries that come into our corporate offices for our services are from sellers themselves calling directly, and they all have a listing agent. One out of 10 of the calls that come in are in fact from a listing agent, but they're only calling because the seller told them to do it. Um, so uh, agents need to be aware um, of something like the auction process because the sellers are certainly looking into it. And a lot about being an agent is being in tune with what your you know, seller wants and expects. The other um, reason um, that I said the, uh, of the two um, that agents should uh, look for auction information sooner rather than later is because um, not only have sellers been organically um, looking into auction companies for many years, but now certain auction companies in the marketplace have really, really, really upped um, the ante in terms of their uh, direct solicitation of listings. Um, they will send tens of thousands of letters and emailers directly to um, the seller, and they do it um, so much and in such high volume that even I've been solicited by, by competitors of mine at my own home a couple of times. My vice president's got three or four letters. So the point being, um, it's out there, uh, Mr. Agent. Um, and uh, you may think that your seller would never have any interest in an auction. And you know he may be the guy who a month from now has the auction sign in his front yard, even if it's a $50 million property and he owns multiple private jets and so forth. So we always encourage agents to, um, you don't have to do an auction on everything or all the time, but just know about one. Um, so a lot of our day-to-day, -day, Beth, is our team is, is contacting agents not to say, hey, let's talk about this listing right here and selling it next month. They're instead saying, let's just talk about what we do. And if you already know about auctions, let me tell you how we do it differently and as we believe, you know, properly, and perhaps you may learn a thing or two. And if not, that's okay. Um, so once we do all of that, to continue to answer your question, um, we most often start off with um, one or more calls, conference calls with um, the agent and the seller. Um, oftentimes we have a, a information um, session just with the agent so they can kind of get their footing and be comfortable um, they will then uh, present what we do to the seller um, in, in a very summary overview fashion. We don't want to have the agents to carry the burden of explaining what we do. It can be tricky um, and it can result in a unfairly shortened conversation. Um, so we encourage the agent to um, use their conversation with the seller um, about an auction to just um, set up a call with all of us, meaning Platinum, the listing agent and the seller, to then discuss who we are and what we do. Um, and in that call, we're not only seeing if the seller is open to what we do um, and the seller's interviewing us, but we're also really interviewing the seller because we want to make sure that um, this is somebody who we feel like we can successfully execute our program for and therefore get the right result. And that's not always the case. Um, uh, so there's a lot of due diligence and qualifying um, up front um, with the uh, prospective agent and seller 
before we would get to uh, the commitment stages of, you know, signing a, a contract and, and things like that. Um, and I'm sorry, did you also ask after a contract then what that all looks like full engagement? Yeah. So, so, so just to continue on, right. I've called, we've had that introductory call with the seller. Um, seller seems on board. You think it's a good fit for you all. And then like, what happens, right? Are there upfront fees? What's the time frame? What's the process you go through to like the actual auction process, the pre-auction and the auction process? So presuming we've, we've cleared all the due diligence hurdles and, and so forth um, prior to um, accepting the property for auction. And there are, are quite a few of those on the, in terms of making sure that we um, have the right property and that it is sellable. Once all that's done and a, and a seller contracts with us, um, first, there is a, a preparation period where our team needs to get everything ready to begin the marketing campaign that we will use to promote um, this auction. Um, and that is really a very, very substantial part of what we do. In fact, a lot of auction companies will say we're really a marketing firm or we're an accelerated mar marketing company. I don't quite think that covers the whole um, suite of our services, so we don't quite go with that too much. But um, it's not wholly incorrect. Um, there's a tremendous amount of marketing that we're doing to promote these properties so that we can have an auction audience and we have to prepare for that. So once a seller signs a contract, um, our team uh, needs about two to three weeks, um, depending on the property, where we are furiously getting everything ready um, for the marketing campaign, designing ads, brand strategy. Are there any um, press worthy or newsworthy elements of, of the property that we can use to get the press involved and develop articles? What are the buzzwords for the property, getting all the features? Obviously, we're working very closely with our listing agent partner on all these you know, type of things, getting lien and title and survey and so forth. Um, and then once that is concluded, we launch the marketing campaign to promote the property. And those campaigns always launch on a, on a Monday. And depending on the property price and size and location, um, a marketing campaign that we do will, um, the shortest campaign we do is five weeks. Um, the longest we've done is uh, seven. Uh, most will fall closer to the five-week range. And during that five-week period, what we are doing um, is, in cooperation with our agent, we are um, executing a very broad-scale um, marketing campaign that is international in scope, um, typically has anywhere from you know, 50 to 70 different moving parts in terms of the advertisements from television commercials to print media to digital marketing and emails and so forth. Um, all those things are working in synergy over that five-week period um, to uh, develop a large-scale, um, as uh, I'm making air quotes with my fingers, large-scale, that's market-adjusted for properties, of course, um, audience of buyers um, to compete to bid on the property. And what we're also doing um, during that um, marketing campaign is uh, we run a, a fairly robust uh, preview schedule for the given property. Um, where we have one of our staff members who's a, a dedicated project manager for that property. Um, and that, that person's job on our team is to eat, sleep, and breathe all things that property only. They're not doing anything else um, for the duration of, of that campaign. So they're a very pivotal person in helping everybody um, stay on point and keeping you know, Platinum as a company connected to our, our brokerage partner and so forth. Um, and uh, the uh, properties that we uh, offer typically sell at the end of that, um, we'll continue to use that five-week timeline, at a live auction at the end of that period. Um, we hold our auctions often on the property site. They're held in real time. Uh, 
Um, people also bid from all over the world remotely. Um, they can do so over the telephone or with a, an audio video feed, FaceTime. People have done uh, FaceTime bidding before, but we still make sure that there's a human being present connected to that remote bidder who has power of attorney so that there's transparency, all T's are crossed and I's are dotted, so to speak, um, and that the other bidders who are in the room don't think there's anything funny going on with this mystery person on a phone or on a screen or something. And the deals are very, very, um, as we say, surgically clean. Um, they are as is, where is deals, no contingencies, um, no negotiations. Um, upon being the high bidder, um, the buyer will make a 10% deposit that's immediately non-refundable. And typically they have 30 days to close on the purchase price. So um, all of that has worked well enough um, that I'm knocking on wood here on my desk that I we have not had at Platinum a defaulted buyer or a broken contract since I, I founded the company. So um, it is very successful in terms of ensuring a, uh, a deal finality in a sale and a clean deal. And to answer your fee question, um, the uh, talking thoroughly about fees can make somebody's head spin a little bit just because it's different, not because it's ominous, but the, the simplest components um, of the process and the simplest way um, that we try to uh, communicate our fee structure to agents and sellers, at least initially, before we share spreadsheets and, and so forth, is um, we essentially come into the deal at a cost to the buyer, not to the seller, because when we come along, there are, there are two vendors now. There's the listing brokerage um, and there's Platinum, the auction house, and both have their fees. Um, and what we're essentially doing um, in a nutshell is the listing agent's fees are maintained. Um, platinum is paid by the buyer in the form of what's called a buyer's premium, just like at a Christie's or Sotheby's auction. That's what the buyer pays on top of their bid um, to make the gross purchase price. Um, and um, the uh, buyer's agent side of a traditional brokerage commission, for example, if Beth, you're a listing agent and uh, you are listing a, a $20 million waterfront home in Miami Beach, you're likely to have a 6% commission um, with 3% to you as a listing agent and then 3% to whomever the buyer's agent is. Um, when we come along um, to auction a property, um, typically what happens is that the seller will no longer pay the full brokerage commission of the six. He will only pay the 3% listing side and then the 3% buyer side doesn't disappear it's just folded into the buyer's premium paid by the buyer. Um, so depending on how you look at it, the Let seller Let me interrupt has... with the legal disclaimer here. <laughs> the, 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 right, the commissions that we're discussing are could be typical of what you'd find in the market. They're not necessarily what anyone specifically charges or we're not suggesting that that is the absolute charge, the listing commission, and how it's shared with the cooperating broker is strictly up to the listing broker and their relationship with the seller in the MLS. Just adding the uh, caveat here so we don't end up with any uh, SEC interference. That is fair game. Yes, thank you. Um, and you know, to speak to that point, you know, there, there are several ways in which um, the, the transactional fees can be arranged, as is the case in traditional real estate. But the important takeaway is that um, it is not at a, at a financial detriment to the broker, um, nor is it to the, the seller um, at the end of the day. And what we also do in our transactions is shift certain costs, um, and we can dictate that in the auction business, um, in the brokerage business, um, the, the ability to dictate certain uh, items in a contract, such as who pays what uh, closing cost 
Um, a, a brokerage doesn't have that ability. It's just negotiable, or it might be dictated by existing president in that given county or state. Whereas in the auction world, um, we can have the, the uh, prospective buyers all sign off um, in advance of a sale on something like that they are paying all of the closing costs in a transaction, even those typically debited to the seller. And in some states, that can be a substantial savings for the seller. For example, in the state of New York, where they have the 1% mansion tax on luxury sales, and then the state transfer tax just increased, in addition to everything else, um, you start to look at about 3 3.5% of a purchase price um, in closing costs that a buyer will now be paying that the seller does not have to pay either in full or in part. So um, that is always a part of our program in that we are shifting um, uh, some, a portion of closing cost, or perhaps all away from a seller um, and over to the buyer. And the primary reason that we do that um, is not just to uh, miscellaneously add more savings, although we'd love to do that for our seller, but it's um, because the uh, one component of our process um, that's very different than traditional real estate and is entirely separate from any commissions or fees, it's not at all a, a profit center, is what we call a marketing investment. And that is a, a, a sum, uh, given sum, it varies depending on the property um, of capital that is um, advanced by the seller, um, him or herself, believe it or not, upfront to fund all of that marketing that we do in our campaign. Um, now, I would say about 80, 85% of our clients um, fund the marketing themselves. Um, for those who do not, we actually have a, an option, somewhat of a, of a credit facility or a, a capital advancement facility um, that we can, you know, we platinum or our, our capital partners can um, advance uh, the given amount on behalf of the seller um, so they don't have any upfront engagement cost to work with us. Um, and then there are mechanisms whereby we, we recoup those monies in the event of a sale or if for some reason there's, there's no sale. So um, there is this element of um, an expense for marketing because when you're running a five-week campaign and you want to do an international uh, 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 marketing uh, platform or program, excuse me, that has those 50, 70 different elements in it, and you want them to be in places where very wealthy people are, are directing their eyeballs, like Forbes, Wall Street Journal, uh, television commercials on you know uh, MSNBC. That kind of stuff is not cheap, and you have to spend um, some type of money to, to make all that work. So um, we have our most of our sellers finance um, that marketing, but um, because um, we we at least platinum, um, as a company, we make that investment by the seller, one that is completely auditable, um, completely transparent. Um, we account for every penny. We send back what we don't spend. And also because of the way um, we move fees and costs around the closing, the sellers are really recouping that amount anyway. So um, there is that element of the, of the marketing cost. Um, sometimes we pay it, sometimes the sellers do. But that is what moves this auction engine, this marketing engine, um, in order to develop our audience. So it is a, a very important part of, of uh, the industry. Okay, so auction process, reserve, no reserve. Is it absolute or non-absolute? If I put my property for auction, do I agree to sell it at any cost or is there a bottom, a floor? Exactly how does the pricing and that structure and with or without reserve work? That's a really, really good question um, that we answer probably every day because auctions kind of fall into that dangerous space that real estate does where um, just because it's something that, for example, because almost everybody has a house or lives in one, you know, they feel like they know everything a real estate broker does, which 
<laughs> typically is not the case. It's scaringly so uh, uh, sometimes. Same thing with auctions, kind of everybody feels like they know what an auction is and that's good and bad, usually bad. So um, a lot of our time is spent distilling really what an auction is and simplifying it. So at the end of the day, Beth, there are really two ways to do an auction and then there are some, some permutations of those ways. But um, the two ways are the ones you mentioned. One is with a reserve um, and the other is um, without a reserve, which is sometimes called absolute um, and used to be primarily called an absolute auction. Nowadays, most of us say without reserve, but it means the same thing. Um, the difference uh, in terms of actual performance, um, you can have a spectacular result, Beth, with both um, types of auction, but um, it's very important that in order to, to try to uh, uh, reach an equilibrium where each model can be equally successful, uh, reserve auctions have to be um, done a certain way um, if you want optimal results. And to be specific, when you're in the uh, field of luxury residential real estate, that's important to note because there's very different things you can do with uh, commercial real estate auctions, auctions of financial instruments, all those types of things. So I'm talking you know, specifically here. Um, and when you do a reserve auction in residential real estate, um, two things that need to be true are that your reserve needs to be published, um, meaning that the marketplace knows what it is. It's promoted in your ads. It's written down. It's not something that's only known between the auction company and the seller, for example. Um, that's very important. Um, and in addition to being published, it has to be and again, I'm making air quotes here with my fingers, it has to be very low. Um, and that's a subjective thing. But um, what we look for typically when we're trying to get a very low reserve is a number that is usually about 50% off, you know, five zero off of where a property's given value um, looks like it is. So for example, if there's a $10 million home listed on the water and our analyst, as we're evaluating the property um, in, in our initial due diligence, all the market information for that $10 million home suggests that it's likely worth today between, uh, let's just pick random numbers, say eight and a half and nine million. Um, so therefore, we're going to want to create a um, reserve for this hypothetical property that is discounted from that 8.5 because that's the lower end of our range by about 50%. So you're talking about a reserve that's, you know, in the, in the 4 million range um, for such a property. In the case of now, I should probably not move on and stop there. Uh, the, the point of doing that is to create a very attractive offering so that many more buyers respond. And what a lot of people will think is, well, of course, many more people will respond. If you took a Ferrari that's 300 grand and offered it for 50K, a lot of people can now buy a Ferrari. And of course, there is that element of it. Um, and they also think, well, only people that can pay 50 or 60K may come out to buy the Ferrari and you know, they shouldn't be there. So you get some opportunist um, uh, people who want to pay lesser amounts when you promote an auction. But the interesting thing that happens, and this is always what surprises people until they see it, is that um, it, the, that effect of promoting this kind of potential discount also brings out the creme de la creme of the buyers, the people with the really big pocketbooks and the private jets and so forth. So that's why you have to um, try your best to get a low, low reserve um, to attract all of those people so that you can have them compete and, and give the seller a chance to have a fair market price, whatever that may be. High reserves, reserves that are not disclosed, very often fail. The other method of an auction without a reserve is what it sounds like. There is no 
uh, reserve number that is established or no floor or minimum, as some people often uh, think of it as, uh, meaning that the property can sell to the highest bidder regardless of the price, which then triggers that popular question, oh my God, it could sell for a dollar. And strictly speaking, reading the contract, I guess you could say that could happen. I haven't seen that yet, but um, the the method behind that madness is, is really simply the following um, for an auction without reserve, and that is um, if you believe that what makes an audience get excited about an auction is to potentially get a deal on a property, um, then what better deal can you offer somebody than to tell them they could buy it for any price, right? So it's a very compelling um, way to promote a property, but it can also intimidate a seller, as you can imagine, because um, there's not a lot of of uh, granular information when the answer is any price. So uh, another element of the program of um, uh, having an auction without reserve that I would say uh, to all the consumers out there, this element is in place in upwards of 95% of, of auctions that are without reserve that you may see. And that is that um, an additional component in the without reserve program that's not there in the reserve program is that uh, the auction company will allow the bidders, and they're allowed, they're not um, required to, but they're allowed to put forth a bid in advance of auction day, um, which we call an opening bid. Um, and they do that because it gets them some type of discount. And to just explain it very simply, um, to not go through all the detail and, and confuse anything, that kind of looks like this. So um, uh, Beth, we'll go back to your $10 million listing. Um, and I'm a buyer now. Um, and the auction is uh, this Saturday, um, August uh, 29th, um, and it's selling without reserve. But the auction literature says that if I want to confirm a bid, meaning I'm, I'm guaranteeing I'll at least bid this amount of money in advance of attending the live auction, um, I might get a financial discount for that. So, you know, I'd probably spend $9 million for this property, Beth, because I really like it and I want to live there with my family. But I don't want to show all my cards as a buyer in advance of the auction. I want to go compete and see what happens. But I'm not crazy. I know this is desirable and it'll, it'll go for some uh, non-ridiculously low price. So I'll put in an opening bid of $4 million. You know, I'll pay at least $4 million. Um, I'll put that bid in on Tuesday, the 25th, even though the auction's not till the 29th. And in exchange for showing that bid, you know, showing the seller something, so to speak, um, I'm going to get something in return if I'm the high bidder. And what I get varies from company to company, but typically it's some type of a discount that I can apply to my deal fees um, if I become the high bidder. So it gives the bidders an incentive to show the seller a little something for his peace of mind. Um, and then the seller in exchange is saying, you know, thank you for giving me some foresight into my pricing so I just don't get, you know, a, an apocalyptically low price and you get a discount on your fees. So that's that's in a nutshell. I know that was really flyby, but that's the the two main um, uh, auction models. But people were really encouraged uh, to to read all of the fine print in any of these cases because while those methods of sale I just described are pretty well defined, they're not really well enforced, and that allows companies to to play with the boundaries a little bit, um, and that can confuse the marketplace and kind of make things difficult. So always pay attention to the fine print and see um, what is really um, occurring with regards to uh, to the auction. What kind of properties make the best auction properties? So our best properties are our real estate agents' best properties. Um, they are essentially aligned. So if a real estate agent says, hey, I can all day long sell that 5,000 square foot waterfront home um, priced between five and seven million, that's what I want to offer. Well, us too. 
Um, and however, um, when something is that sellable, it typically is just sold by the agent and doesn't make its way to us. So the properties usually fall into, into one of two categories um, that, that we tend to handle. Um, and the first category is basically what I just described. The property is not in any way incredibly exceptional or unique, whether good, bad, or in between. Um, but the reasons uh, for which it is not selling are not related to the actual bricks and sticks. It might be a challenging seller, um, a challenging market condition. Um, could maybe be something the agent is doing. That's rarely the case, but um, it could be that type of situation. Um, and then we can come in and um, simply because we are doing things a different way that may appeal to the seller, we can serve as the, as the icebreaker between you know, seller and agent and marketplace and, and bring a seller and, and buyer together. Um, the other type of property is um, what a lot of people tend to think, and that is the really unique uh, properties. And that doesn't mean, unique doesn't mean something like uh, we saw on the news, the guy who bought an old uh, 747 and you know, made a home out of it, <laughs> that, that type of thing. Not that unique, at least not yet. But we see plenty of things like somebody builds an 8,000 square foot home in an area where the other biggest home is 3,000 square feet. And in that 8,000 square foot home, for some reason, they might only have, you know, two bedrooms and then they have a fitness center instead of a third and they did a big wet bar over here and then a dance floor. So all things that cost millions of dollars and, you know, all very high finish, but as you can imagine, are so unique or specific that it's hard to um, uh, price them out in the marketplace traditionally and find uh, the right buyer who appreciates that to the extent that uh, the seller agrees with it. So um, it's one of those two. Um, and in terms of price, typically we like, we start getting involved when something is about two, two and a half million in value and it goes, um, up from there. A lot of it is single family homes, townhomes, condominiums. Um, sometimes we'll do some land, um, if it's waterfront land or has some type of special appeal. Um, but, uh, it's uh, very much a lot of, uh, high end single family homes and individual you know, condominium townhome type of, uh, assets is what we're focusing on. And what overall market conditions are best for real estate auction? I mean, is it, is it a short supply market? Is it an active market? Where do you find auctions work best? So unless there's a situation where there's just totally frozen liquidity in, in a marketplace due to a financial crisis or something, there's very little that, that prevents us from doing our job effectively because an auction if done properly, big emphasis on, on those three words, but if done properly, an auction should reflect at least the you know, current market conditions, current market value. So if a, a market is sagging and a $5 million a property that previously everybody would think was worth $5 million is now at four five, you know, we're also going to be at four five. If a, if a market is just on the nose cone of the rocket and doing incredibly well, um, that's going to be reflected in, in the auction. Um, so, uh, it is, it is often the case that I remember when I transitioned from the luxury brokerage, uh, where I worked initially into the auction business, the broker who was, who was a great guy. Um, I, I enjoyed, uh, time spent with him. He had a lot of good insight on things, but he made a comment to the effect of, Oh, you know, you're going to be working with vultures and it's very cyclical and all that. And I just said, you know, it's really not like that. Cause I'd, I'd been involved in five or six sales before I fully onboarded. Um, and I said, look, it's, it's actually, and this was in, you know, 05, 06, when the markets were going berserk globally, especially in South Florida. 
And we were actually extremely busy because even though markets were incredibly frothy and things were flying off the shelf, even in that environment, some properties were still not finding their buyers. And those were the very expensive and unique properties. So um, that is, it was actually a time just for interesting reference, a time in my career where the average sale price of the auctions I conducted were, were perhaps the highest um, because um, not only were, was pricing higher all around because the tide was risen because of the market conditions, but it was the very wealthiest of sellers who were looking at us and saying, so wait a second, you can't guarantee me a price, but nobody can do that. And you can say you can get market, right? Yes, sir. Well, market's way up here right now. And because of what I do for a living and the people I know, I know it's going to be way down here pretty soon. So, okay, I'll do that. I'll do this auction. So um, it was interesting in that regard that it was a lot of uh, titans of industry with big expensive homes selling their, their properties at auction. Very interesting. Uh, how do you align yourself with brokerages? All day long is the answer. So um, there is kind of a, a two-pronged, um, uh, I guess you could distill it to that two-pronged nature of, of our work with brokers. And that is on the individual agent level, um, which is what a, a, the bulk of our um, sales team is focused on, our business development team. And that's going out and talking to the, the John Smith top producing agent at Coldwell or the, the Jennifer Smith over at, um, at Compass and um, seeing what we can do for them individually, whether it's something that's currently a challenge for them in their portfolio of, you know, 100 million, 200 million in listings, or, um, you know, a category of property they've had trouble with in the past. And, and that's more of a, those conversations with the individual agents are more of a, um, you know, direct servicing um, type of approach and more of a, uh, a micro focus. Um, compared to the other uh, prong, which is the macro focus on the brokerage industry, which is where um, our company and our, our executives and management focus on making uh, relationships with uh, brokerage ownership and management. And that can be on the smaller scale. That can be a boutique brokerage out of um, uh, Texas that has uh, four offices and 400 agents, but operates successfully in the luxury space. And um, you know, we look for opportunities to um, not just focus on individual agents, but do things like, uh, you know, let's look at your bottom line, Mr. Broker Owner. And if you had 30 listings um, last year, over 5 million that just naturally expired, what if by offering auctions consistently, you could not lose of those 30, you could not lose four or five of them. You could recapture those and get a sale and get the buyers. And on a much bigger level, we do things like uh, we actually have um, formal auction service contracts, um, some of which we've had for many years, some that are new, with some very large-scale um, brokerages like Sotheby's, uh, Berkshire, um, England Volkers. And that is something where we have a formal papered relationship at the corporate executive level that um, then allows us to access their broader um, agent network, sponsor their events, um, uh, perhaps get up on a, a stage um, if there is one, and uh, and talk about what we do to you know further our relationships and our our potential to uh, uh, conduct business. So um, we really approach it from all angles in order to um, try to be as ingrained with the brokerage community as we can. Okay. So last question of this section, I want you to share at least one or two great auction stories. Okay. I have a really good one, and it's very timely that you ask me that because it also represents something that's just really uncommon. But 
here we go. So this property is going to close, I think, next week. And uh, it is in New York. And the property um, was listed with a good broker. Um, it started off um, at uh, $5.25 million. Now, this property, um, unique little marketplace, not a lot of transactions there, but a whole lot of money there. And for example, the the owners, um, just to give you an idea of uh, sellers who, who do things like an auction, um, the ownership of this property was a partnership of two individuals. Uh, and I'll, I'll give them some anonymity, but I'll, I'll try to get as close as I can. So one of them was a co-founder of a, a really, 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 really well-known um, internet company um, that everybody in the world probably knows. Um, and the other was a founder of a very, very, very successful um, home furnishings and decoration uh, company. So they're not doing too bad. Um, and they bought this property and decided it didn't work out the way they wanted it to, went to resell it. Started at 5.25 with the top broker in the area. No bites. After 55 days, they reduced the price to $4.89 million, where the property sat for 705 consecutive days with zero offers. So we took this property to auction without reserve. Um, and the auction was August 1. And we had something like 55 or 60 showings of the property. We had 14 bidders at the live auction. Um, and this is all during the whole COVID thing. Um, everybody was social distance and mask on for the auction. But this was a lakefront property. Um, there were two billionaire groups in the audience. There was one uh, currently pretty famous uh, actor um, who's, who's on TV every week um, and, and some other uh, interesting families. And the property sold, it's a good part of the story, property sold for $5.21 million and, wow, wow, wow. and the buyer's going to pay all the closing costs. He'll pay an additional about 3.5% of that. So that means that we sold the property for 107% of its full list price after that list price aged on the market for 705 days. Now, the agent was, was almost going into cardiac arrest, the listing it. He was so excited during the auction. The sellers were, as you can imagine, over the moon. They actually watched the act. I piped them into the auction on my, uh, my iPad uh, via FaceTime. Uh, so they were uh, pretty uh, excited about it. And the listing broker um, got a bonus commission because the sellers thought he did, went so well. And also his other clients that he had uh, up in the marketplace who'd also been sitting there with no luck for a while called him and said, that, I want to do that. Let's do that. And we signed them up and he's going to be ready to go for another one here um, in a month. So um, Amazing. it was for everybody's happy. Uh, you know, agents beside himself, uh, other sellers are calling in and asking him his advice on what to do. And he's now going to end up being, my guess is, a go-to kind of agent consultant up there. Sellers who have interest, they won't just call us directly. They'll call him and talk to him. So he's, I'm very happy for everyone and, and happy for the agent because that whole thing really turned around and um, he's already turning it into two more business and more opportunity. That is amazing, that amazing nuts. story. Yeah, but that's how it works. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm sure you have a lot of stories like that. This one is particularly relevant because it's right here in the middle of COVID, and like sort of in, sp in spite of all of the, in spite of all the uh, interesting situations, as I'm just calling it now. Hashtag because it's 2020. I mean, it's, it's just, it's like, yeah, 2020, you know, that explains a lot of things these yes, days. Yes, it does. So that's great. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, 
That sounds amazing. We're going to run into the lightning round. Are you ready? Uh, as ready as I'll be, I think. Yes, go. So where were you born? I was born in good old Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Pittsburgh, PA. Okay, what's your birth order? I am the second of two children. Um, I have an older sister who's three and a half years my senior, also lives in Florida, and she's an attorney. Okay, well, I didn't know that. Academic background? Academic background, nothing at all to do with what I do for a living. I uh, have a degree in biological science, basically pre-med, biological sciences, uh, and a minor in physiology, kinesiology. Okay, yes, I see how you use that every day. That's great. <laughs> right. <laughs> Who was your best teacher? My best teacher, um, there were two uh, that I say are a tie, and this goes back. Um, one was uh, in grade school, Mrs. Camden. Miss Camden was a ruthless disciplinarian and an amazing math teacher. She could teach math to a brick. Um, and then there was... Uh, Joe Nicolella, or Mr. Nick, or Joe Nick, um, uh, and as you get older, you, you're allowed to call him different things, but he was uh, an assistant basketball coach to me in high school and an English teacher, and I'm much more of an English guy than a math guy, um, ironically, being in the sciences, and he just was a guy who you could absolutely, I don't know if anybody I've ever met loves being a teacher, loves their job more than him. He just went all out. He was very dedicated to what he did, and he cared, and it, it just made an impression on me. I always wanted to do my best on his test or write the best you know, paper, and I think anybody who can cause a, a student to do that is important. It, it's interesting. There's always one of those, right? Yep. I've done this podcast often enough, and a lot of people uh, cite that person. A lot of times it is uh, like a coach, too, somebody that was also a sports coach. Who do you consider your best mentor? So, well, I'd, I'd fall into the category of one of those people. That would be a sports coach that I had um, in high school. And um, he was uh, one of my best friends. I'm actually passed away at a young age. It was his father. Um, so there was a personal connection I had to the family. But that was almost largely secondary to the fact that he was coach. And you just called him coach. And I still call him coach. Um, and people older than me who run big companies call him coach. <laughs> And it was a small <laughs> high school, small town, and he's not a self-important guy, but he was the basketball coach, or excuse me, he was the football coach. And as you probably know, Beth, in Pennsylvania, especially Western PA, football is everything. So when you're the football coach of a successful program, you are the man. Um, he's more important than the principal. Friday Night Lights. That's right. Yes, exactly. So he was that, um, but he was such an incredible, uh, he was a family man, a spiritual man, a coach, a mentor, a teacher, and he was, he was strict, but he ha had a lot of warmth and character, and as I often tell people to describe him in a couple sentences, is that he was the type of person that, and this is meant literally, because I went to a very public, public school, and he is, I wouldn't say that it's an exaggeration to say that he's single-handedly responsible for keeping at this point, hundreds of youths out of jail and, and probably alive because of the way he engaged them with sports. And I mean, these are kids, they'd be, you know, wearing earrings and certain type of clothing and misbehaving. And once football season started, uh-uh, none of that stuff. I mean, it was like they were a totally different person. I mean, his influence was that thorough and that carried on 
for many years beyond high school for me. So definitely it's Coach Guy Montecalvo is his name. I like that you categorized uh, misbehaving by wearing earrings. Well, I, well, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't say, yeah, I had to say wearing earrings and, and I was like, say something other than all the things they do. Uh, <laughs> so that was, that was my uh, attempt. <laughs> you, you did grow up in a small town. That's all I'm going to say. Yes. Well, that, that, that's a, consider that a metaphor for all the things they did that I can't say on this podcast. <laughs> Tell us about your current familial status. Current familial status, um, very active. So I am uh, five years plus married, and we have two incredible children. I have a four-year-old daughter who just turned four and named Lincoln, and I have a son who's about to turn two uh, named Lark. Lark and Lincoln, mm-hmm. very nice. I know you live in Fort Lauderdale. What do you like best about your home? I told, I actually hate my house, um, and I, I say that both both as a joke and not. Um, I just because I do what I do. I, I meet many, many, many people who, you know, end up realizing at the end of the day, you know, it's just this house that they put all this money and and care and attention into, and then it becomes a burden. So, you know, that's always in my mind, and I never wanted to make buying my own home a really big deal, and. <laughs> Unfortunately, I went so far to the other end of that spectrum or went, went with that a little too much in that I, I, I did 80, 80 90% of, of everything I was doing to buy the house I had, Beth, when I was on a business trip. I was doing it on the phone, email, because I just wanted to make my wife calm and happy and know that when we were starting our family, it'd be in a house that we owned because I travel a lot and so forth. So um, it, it fit the general specs that we wanted, being the size that it is and, and the location that it is. But I just don't like it as a house, really. It's just not my style, but we're working on it. So um, I like the space it affords us. It, it, you know, it's on the water and we have views and all that. But um, it's more my, my wife's uh, thing than it is mine. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure one of the dozens of real, real estate agents that are listening to this podcast will be reaching out to help you find that house that you love. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. What's your favorite vacation spot? That would have to be uh, Lake Como in Italy, and close, close second would be the the Piedmont region, uh, the wine region up there, northern uh, area of Italy. Nice, very nice. Um, what's your morning routine? So uh, hectic would describe it, um, and um, since I have a very very heterogeneous um, business style, where you know, I, without COVID, I typically travel thirty thirty five times a year, so. Time is very fungible um, for me, but typically I'll get up uh, very early between you know, 6.30 or 7.30, and that's either by way of my alarm or one of my kids bopping me in the head with an animal or, <laughs> or something or other and cuddling for a little bit. And then I, I try to help my wife as best I can. Uh, I'm sure she'll argue the, the degree of the, I'm helpful, but I try to help get the kids ready a little bit. Um, in the morning, and then I'm I'm pretty much out the door. Um, food and all that, and coffee is kind of secondary. I'm, I'm on the phone in my car on the way to the the other office, not my home office, and um, then the day begins. Off and running. Off and running what is yes. Could... It's I'm, I'm I'm regimented, but it's kind of regimented chaos, I guess, is what you could say. <laughs> what do you consider your biggest failure and your best success? So the best success is an easy one. That's absolutely my two children. I don't think I've ever done anything as great as, as them and, and don't know if I ever will unless I have another, which I'm not planning on that. But um, the failures, hard to say one big one because I'm a person who's very comfortable saying, hey, I've had a, a ton of failures, big, medium, and small. And um, 
it starts from, you know, what major I chose in college uh, to how I started my course in, in business and in the real estate industry. So I would just say there are quite a few <laughs> rather than one big one in particular. There you go. Do you have any aspirational goals? Uh, yes, probably the most prominent would be, you know, there are all kinds of little tiny ones, you know, getting this number of sales, doing this, but those are all connected to really the same thing, which is obtaining a certain level of success, whatever that may be, um, subjective definition, that would allow me to uh, be at a point in my life where um, different from my parents who were always working their butts off to make sure my sister and I were taken care of and so forth and therefore couldn't necessarily come to all the sporting events and, and do all the extra things. But God, my mom came to so many. I have no idea how she did that. Um, but I don't want to uh, be um, uh, burdened in that way. I'd like to be as available as I, I can for my children. So I uh, want to be uh, successful enough that I have the option and to be very fair, I'm definitely a, a workaholic and not a recovering one. I'm, I'm a, I'm a full, full out workaholic and I'll never not be one. So I just want to be able to be positioned such that if I decide to, to hang it up or do something different or more reserved and by the time I'm in my you know, 50s, early 60s, that I can do that. Um, so that's really the, the ultimate goal. Good for you. Good for you. What do you think was your favorite part of quarantine? Ooh, nothing. No, I'm kidding. Um, the favorite part <laughs> was um, the extra time that despite that I still you know, I have my home office and then we have a dedicated office and then we you know, travel when we can. And um, so I'm not one of those people that's uh, a prisoner in their own home, as I know a lot of my friends and, and peers are. But uh, even that said, I still have been spending more time at home um, when I otherwise wouldn't because fewer people were open to meetings and travel and things like that. And in doing so, we was able to spend a lot more time with my kids. So even including the time where they were you know, grabbing the phone from me and, and saying, oh, hey, Mr. Poophead, and things like that to, to, to people I was talking to, <laughs> which wasn't, wasn't great, um, or you know, typing a bunch of keys and messing up an email, um, that was uh, paled in comparison to being able to catch those, you know, important moments when they're so little, because they'll be big very fast. Hey, Mr. Poop. That, yeah, that, so, that's, Mr. that's literal. That's, I'm not making, I'm not being figurative. That happened. <laughs> so, so Trayer, you know, I'm going to start calling you Mr. Poophead just because that, that those sort of things stick with me. Um, <laughs> Where can people get in touch with you um, if they want to reach out just to get to know you better or learn more about auctions? So I'm going to embarrass myself here uh, as a podcasting uh, guest by being very uh, coming off as very non-tech as saying that I really don't have any of my own social media, believe it or not. And I'm still in my 30s, barely. So it came up with it. But I do have a LinkedIn. Um, I don't really spend time on it. It's a kind of a company managed thing. But the best way to, to get to me um, is, is to get a hold of the company. Um, in fact, it's easier to find me by getting a hold of the company rather than me directly because of my schedule. And, you know, PlatinumLuxuryAuctions.com. So just the name of the company.com is our website. Um, and if you look up our company name and then add any given social media handle like Twitter, uh, Instagram, um, and, and so forth, uh, you'll find that we have our uh, a, a pretty active profile on all of those. So, um, if you look us up by the name, you will find us and, and in so facto find me and uh, welcome, you know, any questions, comments, um, any consulting, even if it's not necessarily auction specific, we're always happy to, to speak with folks about luxury real estate. Well, and I guess just to close, 
I want to thank you, Trier, and just tell everybody that's listening, you know, auction can be a very challenging part of our industry, mm-hmm. of our business. Um, many auction companies have given the auction business a bad name. They're not, they've not been reputable and it's left a bad taste in the mouths of clients and the agents that referred them. But I just want to say, having known Treyer and worked with Treyer through several companies, several, many auctions, many agents, you know, he is as honorable as the day is long and you'll never be sorry for calling platinum luxury auctions. Thank you again, Treyer, for being with us on From the Ground Up. Well, I appreciate that tremendously. It's been a pleasure and uh, to respond in kind um, as far as uh, you know, me working with you and knowing you, um, Beth. There are very few people in, in the real estate world in my 15 years that, in my opinion, have always done what they're doing in whatever role they are in extremely well with integrity and with consistency and, and are people that, that I can think of, well, how would you know Beth think of this? Or I bet if I asked Beth, she would know and it's you know exactly the answer I thought was the right one, or, or better answer than I had. And, and there's maybe two or three people out there in the real estate universe. And I work all over the country, so you're one of those two or three. Thank you for being one of those two or three, and uh, thank you for having me on. And um, I look forward to many other things that uh, we could perhaps do together in the future. Thank you again, Mr. Poophead. I appreciate it. <laughs> thank you, Beth. Have a good one. This episode of From the Ground Up was sponsored by Feather the Nest, the crowdfunding source for all of your real estate needs. Why register for silverware when you can start your way to owning or renting your own home? Please sign up for your nest at www.featherthenest.com. A special thanks to my extraordinary producer, Sohail Fazluddin, who has made this podcast possible.